Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the blatant hate and trolls. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get Uh, one of my favorite quotes about innovation and progress uh, is uh, from Douglas Adams, and it's it's pretty famous. You, maybe you've heard it before. It says that uh, anything that is in the world when you're born is normal and ordinary and is just a natural part of the way the world works. Anything that's invented between the time when you're 15 and 35 is new and exciting and revolutionary, and you can probably get a career in it. And then anything that is invented after you're 35 is against the natural order of things. Uh, most people seem to focus on the last two points of this, the things that happen after you're 15. Uh, and I, I've even seen this quote show up without the first part. Uh, but there's something I think that's really interesting in that first part about how anything that is in the world when you're born is normal and ordinary and is just a natural part of the way the world works. There's a related quote uh, from computer scientist Mark Weiser about the idea of uh, ubiquitous computing where he said that the most profound technologies are those that disappear. They weave themselves into the fabric of everyday life until they're indistinguishable from it. In other words, you just don't even notice it because it's just a natural part of the way the world works, as Adam said. Uh, though it's notable that Weiser used the terms weave and fabric in his quote, because I think uh, for many of us, we'd feel that way about clothing and fabric. It's just there. Uh, sure, there are occasional advancements, but on the whole, we don't think about it as a, a product that we think about or talk about when we're talking about innovation and, and technology. And yet, uh, it's truly incredible how many stories of innovation can actually be traced back to fabric and clothing in some form or another. Uh, that was a key lesson that I got uh, from a new book, uh, what I would say is an absolutely mind-blowing, fascinating new book uh, from, from uh, Virginia Postrel called The Fabric of Civilization, which goes piece by piece through the history of fabric and weaves. And yes, I'm choosing that word on purpose, an incredible story of innovation that uh, isn't just relevant to today's thinking on innovation, but might help us rethink some of how we view innovation today. And I'll admit that even though I've talked about historical examples related to fabrics and clothing in the past, when I first heard about the book, I wasn't, I wasn't actually that sure that it would be that interesting or relevant to what I write about or talk about. But after learning a bit more about the book, I realized that the opposite is true. And I, I now think that this might be one of the most interesting and important books on innovation uh, that has come out in a long, long time. So I am very excited to have Virginia Postrel on the podcast to talk about the fabric of civilization. So welcome to the, the uh, podcast. It's great to be with you. So you know, the standard question when interviewing an author is always to ask them why they wrote a book. And sometimes I feel like that's too easy of a question. But in this case, like, it's such a, a broad topic and such an interesting topic and, and, and one that, you know, wouldn't necessarily have occurred to me. I'm really curious, like, what brought you to this topic of, of sort of the history of fabric and, and clothing and sort of how that relates to innovation itself? Over a period of 
quite a number of years, maybe even as long as a decade, I was exposed to various academic presentations, museum exhibits, uh, books, uh, articles that piece by piece convinced me that, wow, the history of textiles and specifically the history of textiles and technology or textiles as technology was something really interesting. And that one of these days, I'd like to write an article about that. Hmm. And then what happened was in 2014, a friend of mine to whom I had said this, who was at that time the uh, fashion curator at the Phoenix Art Museum, said, hey, Virginia, uh, the Textile Society of America is having its biannual conference at UCLA, which is about a mile and a half from my house. And if you're really serious about writing about textiles and technology, you ought to go. And I did. And there I heard some amazing talks from archaeologists, from historians um, that were interesting, not only in what they said about the history of technology and its relation to fabric, but also just the technologies or the science that they were using to understand uh, what had happened in the past. You know, how do you tell by looking at sheep bones, whether people are raising sheep for wool or raising them for milk and meat? Uh, They can do that, believe it or not. (laughs) You know, this was really mind-blowing. So there were a bunch of different things, everything from seeing a vividly, uh, colored purple and black striped dress in an exhibit to at the museum of at the fashion institute of technology in new york which really brought home the transformative qualities of synthetic dyes to thinking about computation and weaving as a binary process the oldest binary process A whole bunch of things came together, and I thought, this is really interesting. So after I went to that conference, I wrote an article for the online magazine Aeon about textiles and technology, and that came out in 2015. And then it was a couple of years before I got around to doing a book proposal and and getting a book contract. And out of that came two and a half years of research, putting (laughs) together the story uh, uh, for the book, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's incredible. Like there's, there's so much research that I know went into it. And then, then, you know, you, you turn into such a, a fascinating story. I was saying, as I was reading it, you know, I kept taking tidbits out of it and like, and telling my wife about it because it was just so interesting. And my wife doesn't care about anything that I'm usually interested in. So, so there, there was just so many interesting stories in there. Um, you know, going from, from way back to, 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 you know, very, modern uh, innovation that's happening. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I thought was interesting even is just the um, uh, the way the book is is laid out in, in, in that, you know, each chapter, you don't go through like uh, a, a history from like ancient times directly to the to the present, like throughout the whole book. What you do is like each chapter focuses on one area of fabric, uh, and then you go you you go through sort of the history of that area of of it, like dyes or you know weaving or or uh, you know whichever. Um, and so each one is just filled with with 
tidbits and stories and historical artifacts and 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 pulls together this whole vision of like how did we get here and you know things about like you know uh you know dyes for example i think it's it's fascinating the history of how uh, you know, we have color <laughs> in <laughs> clothing and, and how that's like a huge technology revolution in its own way. Yeah. I mean, dyes are fascinating in a, in a number of ways. The, the, the theme of the history, the chapter on dyes is that the history of dyes is basically the history of chemistry right. and that it illustrates both the power and the limitations of purely trial and error learning without a deeper scientific understanding. So it's amazing that at least as long ago as 6,200 years, because we have the cloth, people were dyeing cloth with indigo, mm -hmm. which is an incredibly chemically complicated process. You have to uh, turn the plants into indigo and then you have to turn the indigo into something else in order to get it to adhere to the fabric and then you have and then you pull it out of the water and it starts out green and it turns blue i mean it, it's a, an amazing and really chemically complex process and yet all around the world using different plants uh people figured out how to do this and that is amazing yeah. and and the earliest uh known uh, recovered textiles with indigo dye uh, are 6,200 years old, found in, in Peru. Um, but then, as I mentioned, when I mentioned the purple and black dress, in the 19th century, in the middle of the 19th century, you finally have enough advances in chemical science to synthesize dyes in the lab. Uh, and that really creates an explosion of colors, uh, so many colors that naming them becomes a trick. <laughs> uh, and and some of those colors, like indigo, are synthesized version of what people used to get from plants, and others are completely new. Uh, and that real and then ultimately that well not ultimately, but immediately that creates the chemical industry because you have a big market for dyes. And mm -hmm. companies like Bayer started as a dye work. Uh, yep. Once uh, once you have this market for dyes, which also provides a market for the inputs, the chemical inputs into making those dyes, then people start to come up with drugs and explosives and adhesives and photographic chemicals. And ultimately, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, well, the 1930s, uh, you get the development of polymer chemistry and synthetic fibers and plastics. Yeah, you know it, it's you know one of the things that's interesting to me, and I had, I had emailed this to you early on, was that you know I uh, you know I've talked about you know something that I know is interesting to a lot of the tech dirt listeners and readers. Um, you know I've looked at the the history of of that industry, but you know in the on the intellectual property uh, argument because you know one of the arguments people make is that you know we couldn't have a pharmaceutical industry without you know strong patents and but if you look back at the history of these companies that became the pharmaceutical giants like Bayer and, and others that were originally dye companies you know the the period of time in which they they became those those giants was often ones where they didn't have patent protections and in fact like the the two the two sort of biggest uh areas where where they were developed in like Switzerland and Germany where they had very 
limited patent protection, if any, uh, for, for, for dyes and, and early pharmaceuticals. And another thing about that is that um, a lot of the patents for things like the first aniline dye which came to be known as MOAP, were only good in one country. Right. So William Perkin invented the first synthetic dye, and he did patent it. But his patent was a British patent. It didn't apply in France. It didn't apply in Germany. Uh, now, I will say forests have been felled uh, of <laughs> academic articles studying uh, the chemical industry and yeah. why did Britain lose out to... Germany in terms of predominance in the chemical industry and all of these things. And sometimes people uh, look and say that's because their intellectual property laws weren't strong enough. I doubt that's the case, but that's partly just my prejudice. <laughs> yeah. um, now, one thing that I, I do talk about is relevant to intellectual property. Before you have chemical synthesis, which provides the idea of a chemical formula is that anybody could copy it and that's why you need a patent because it's right. easy to copy. You know, there is actually a lot of process uh, innovation involved and it's not necessarily that easy to copy. But right. before you have those uh, chemical or synthetic dyes, because all dyes are chemicals, um, you have a transformation in how people think about dying in the traditional ways from a world in which it is very much a trade secret that mm -hmm. the techniques are passed down from uh, master to apprentice or within families to a world in which in the 16th century you get the first dye manual and then you get the uh, sharing of uh, dye results and experiments in the sort of budding world of science or uh, specifically chemistry, uh, where people are trying to figure out how can they apply these new sciences uh, to dyeing, which goes down a lot of blind alleys. Um, there's phlogiston comes in, and there's an attempt to apply Newton's optics, which doesn't work at all with <laughs> dyes. Uh, but, uh, but you see this development of science, and part of that starts with the idea, and I talk about this also in the context of weaving, with the idea of sharing sharing knowledge as a way to advance uh, practice uh, and yeah. advance uh, deeper understanding as well. And and in the and I, I'm pretty sure it was in the weaving section. You also talk about sort of early industrial espionage oh, and, yeah. and and stealing the idea. The history of textiles. I mean, I could have yeah. written a whole chapter on industrial espionage. Uh, I do talk about it uh, in a couple of places in in the book, but there's a lot. I mean, everything from uh, China. You know, it, in China, they didn't want the secrets of sericulture, that is raising uh -huh. silk, uh, to get out of the country, and there were a couple of monks who in the early Middle Ages smuggled some silk uh, worm cocoons out in, I believe, some kind of like walking sticks or something <laughs> like that and got them to uh, the Middle East. And that's how then from there they got into Europe. Uh, so the raising of silk, uh, there are cases of, of machines being, I, I, I do tell the one story of how these uh, 
certain type of silk throwing machines. Uh-huh. I won't go into the details of what that is, but it's basically twisting silk threads. Uh, uh, some brothers in England decided to steal those secrets from the Italians and they engaged in, but even things that maybe, or maybe you'd call it industrial espionage or maybe you wouldn't, but uh, spinning machines came to the U S in the brain <laughs> of uh, a guy named Slater who moved from uh, England to Rhode Island. I believe, yeah. Rhode uh, Samuel Slater. And so that's how the New England uh, spinning mills uh, came to be, is because somebody brought over the ideas which had been developed in England. Yeah. I mean, it is, there, there's so much of the story throughout the book is, is really about about knowledge sharing and, and how how ideas spread and change and how improvements are made, um, you know, at, at you know, huge timelines, right? You know, as, yeah. when we think of innovation, we always tend to think in much shorter timelines. And that's also one of the things that I really appreciated about the book is that you, you begin to, you know, think about innovation on, on you know, not just centuries of timelines, but millennia, um, which, which makes it really interesting to think about, you know, how big those changes are across time. Yeah, the earliest thing in the book is the invention of string, or we have string, that right. is 50,000 years old, and that is was actually made by Neanderthals. And interestingly, the paper about this was published between the time that I submitted the first draft of my manuscript and the time that I oh. did the second one. Uh, so this is very recent scientific uh, findings. Uh, string is an absolutely transformational technology. It is it is not textiles. It's just string. Right. Uh, but it is a general purpose technology like the steam engine or like the semiconductor. Uh, it has many, many uses. And so once you have string, you can, well, for one thing, you can tie those stone uh, blades that you've been making. You can tie them to a shaft and make a spear. You can make fishing nets. You can uh, make a uh, carriers for your baby or you can tie your food up so that it's above the ground and, and animals won't get it or vermin won't get it. Uh, all kinds of things are made possible by string, which comes tens of thousands of years before cloth, uh, but it is necessary to have it first. And you have to figure out, you know, somebody has to have this idea of, hey, there are these sort of stringy insides of this bark that I've been peeling <laughs> off for whatever reason, uh, uh, and what if I roll them on my thigh, I can make them longer and longer and uh, stronger and stronger, and I, we could do something with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it's it's really incredible because you know, as I'm as I was reading, it, at least I was thinking like I've, I've I don't think I've ever thought about the history of string, <laughs> and like you know, it feels like it's something that was always there, but clearly at some point it had. Well, to I have, think at fifty thousand years, you know. <laughs> Always there is pretty close to the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so, but but it it is incredible and and it is really interesting to see how you know how it came about and and even like comparing string uh, to like silk threads, right? And sort of the differences yeah. between them. It's it's you know it's it's really interesting how these things developed in different you know different parts of the world and and how they were used. 
Um, and and there, there's all sorts of stuff like that. Um, one, one of the other stories I wanted to get at, which again sort of touches on the sort of information sharing and innovation and, and, and almost, you know, the policy aspects of it too. You know, one of the stories you had, I guess, going back to the dye industry was where you had, I think it was um, the finance minister for Louis XIV. Yeah. Who was trying to control the dye industry in France and and was like both investing in research, but then also requiring that that all the dye companies use best practices <laughs> exactly. so that they they couldn't experiment, but they had to experiment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm not exactly sure how uh, they squared that circle. I suspect there was some variety. Um, right. You know, it, it was a good idea to spread best practices because there was a great deal of variation and quality and and that variation created variations in quality. Um, on the other hand, they wanted to innovate and, and you can't innovate if you're only doing the same thing. So this is, this is a tricky question. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you see something similar happens in, in Japan, less with policy, but um, before the opening of Japan to the West in the, in the mid 19th century, there's a tremendous variation in the kind of silkworms uh, mm -hmm. that are used in the silk industry by region. And it it meets the market very much there uh, because there's a lot of status and identity uh, embedded in different kinds of silk. Mm -hmm. But once you have this opportunity to have an export market, uh, the people who are producing the silk thread would really like to have more standardization so that they can use these great new uh, machines. And the Japanese actually, uh, in a very uh, stereotypically Japanese way, uh, they're very precise and they use their traditional sericulture and m meld that to... Uh, what then was modern genetics, so Mendelian uh, genetics, uh, and create a hybrid silkworm that is far superior to anything that was before, and that becomes the standard silk that is used throughout Japan, and it creates a, uh, a, a very strong silk thread that is good on the highly mechanized looms that are used in the United States. So Japan... And the United States become the major silk producers, uh, displacing, uh, respectively, I guess, China as the silk uh, source and uh, France as the silk weaving. I mean, they still exist. They still have industries, but they are not producing for the mass market. Yeah, I mean, a, a related story that was fascinating, too, in talking about the silkworms is how they more or less led to the germ theory of disease as, as people were trying to figure out why silkworms were, were dying. Yes, and this was an interesting thing because I knew going into the the research, and I'm sure many of your listeners have also heard that Louis Pasteur worked on silk worms. Uh, it's one of those things that if you ever hear about Louis Pasteur, you may have heard of that. Uh, but what I found was that actually before him, there was this 
quite interesting Italian guy named Augustino Bassi, who was actually by training a lawyer, uh, but he was really into scientific research, and he spent years and years and years trying to discover the source of, uh, of something that was making the silkworms die. And everybody, including him, thought that it was some kind of toxin. Uh, but he tested everything he could come up with, uh, and he couldn't reproduce the phenomenon. And finally, finally, after giving up at one point, uh, he realized that what was going on was that you had a fungus with spores, and the spores were infecting the the uh, silkworms, and once they got to a certain level, the silkworms would die, and that it was only the, the sort of dead silkworms that infected other ones. Um, and this was the first application of germ theory, of the first, uh, and he came up with all kinds of disinfecting pro practices and such, uh, which were very much uh, sort of along the lines of what became standard later. And it was in the silk industry. And then later, uh, Pasteur comes along, and there is who, who had only worked on yeast at that point uh, in the brewing industry, but there's this disease that's killing off the French, very large French silk industry. <laughs> uh, so he's a big shot. And uh, unlike Bossy, who was all self-financed and nobody'd heard of him. Um, and the French government asked him to do something about this. And that is the first time that Pasteur works on an animal because silkworms are insects and insects are animals. And that is, uh, he makes some progress. He doesn't cure the disease, but he finds ways to uh, separate the diseased uh, eggs from the undiseased ones um, and keep it sort of under control. Uh, but that, that then leads to his later uh, work on things like rabies, and, and uh, which is very important in the history of medicine. Yeah. You know, one of the other things that, that struck me about the book is, is, you know, not only is it talking about, uh, you know, innovation and, and all of these, these wonderful stories, but it also, you know, has some of the stories of, of commerce and kind of early commerce and trade and specialization. And there's, there's, there, you know, economics lessons in, in here as well, uh, that I found really fascinating and sort of going back, you know, pretty far back in terms of how, you know, how goods were shipped and, and, you know, how, uh, the you know merchants in the city and you know transporting fabrics from from here to there and all sorts of stuff that I I just never even heard about in the past either. Um, you know what what were some of the interesting things that that you found in in researching this? Well, well, the history of textiles is the history of trade, or the history of trade right. is the history of textiles. I mean, when we're we're in school, people always talk about spices and you know because they're lightweight and high value, and you know spices were important, but by the way, spices, as that term was used, included dye stuffs like indigo. Right. So uh, that, that's that got a textile aspect too. But our earliest records of long-distance trade, written records, are about 4,000 years old. They're cuneiform tablets that are, are from a site in Anatolia that's called Kanesh. And they are the sort of receiving end of the letter, their letters, contracts, some lawsuits um, that were 
kept by merchants who were from a different city. They were from a, a city called Assur, which is near uh, where Mosul in Iraq is now. And they would bring uh, textiles and also tin uh, about 900 miles uh, to the city of, of uh, Kanesh. And we have these wonderful, wonderful records, uh, mo- which are still being translated because there's like 42,000 of them, wow. uh, of the correspondence. And it really does uh, – record a lot of business practices there are practices about you know how you deal with partners uh you there are practices about how you deal with agents do you hire and uh, because one thing that sometimes they would do is they would get a partner in Asur would send them textiles. The guy in Kanesh would then have a choice does he sell them right away in the big city or does he uh Lend, uh, give them on credit to an agent who could get a higher price out in the outlying towns. And there's a lot of, you know, business haggling over this. Uh, also, you see sometimes somebody will say, hey, I need cash, sell them right away and send the money right back. Other people will say it's most important thing is to get the highest price. So that's, uh, that's one aspect of it. Uh, I have this There's some wonderful correspondence between a wife who is also the manufacturer back home and her husband who is selling and, and she is complaining that he is complaining about the textiles. (laughs) And if you read a bunch of letters, part of what's going on seems to be going on is that uh, either there's poor communication or the, uh, the customers keep changing their minds about what they want because it has to do with how much wool is in the textiles. You know, are they too dense or are they not dense enough? And uh, and this is an eternal business problem between <laughs> manufacturing and marketing or manufacturing and sales. Um, you know, why don't you sell what I make? Why can't you make what can sell? You know, and, this, right. and, and so it's this one of the things I really love about history is that people in the past are so, so different from us. And yet in some ways they're very much the same. And the textile history captures both of those elements. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's, that's definitely, definitely evident. It's, <laughs> as I said, like the stories are really, really amazing. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things that, that shows up through this too, and, and something that, um, you know, right now we've been talking a lot about, you know, the tech lash and there's like this focus on, on technology and automation and all these kinds of things, you know, uh, Luddism, the original yeah. Luddism is also related to, to textiles and, and machinery. Right. And so Absolutely. you get some of the backlash as well to innovation that shows up in your book. Yeah. So what's interesting about the Luddites. So first of all, I have to explain about the historic Luddites. They were hand weavers who, at the beginning of the 19th century, so around 1800-ish, were being displaced by power looms. And like anybody, they did not like losing their jobs. (laughs) Uh, And they protested, uh, sometimes peacefully, but they also rioted. They smashed looms. They attacked factories. And... uh, there was law enforcement used against them. This is in, in Britain. Um, and uh, 
a few of them were actually executed. Most of them who engaged in this violence were actually deported to Australia. Hmm. Um, but what is different is they were not anti-tech ideologues, which is mm-hmm. what this has become. They were just people who didn't want to lose their jobs. But the irony is that their jobs and the fact that their jobs paid reasonably well for the time, uh, that was made possible by an earlier round of technological innovation and technological displacement, which was the development of spinning machines. Before the Industrial Revolution and the development of spinning machines, it was often the case that weavers didn't have enough raw material. They didn't have enough yarn. And because it takes enormous amounts of time to hand spin yarn and it takes ridiculous amounts of yarn to make anything uh, you know six miles of yarn and a pair of blue jeans right. uh, a mile and a half in a bandana it's just it's un- it's hard to fathom <laughs> and so when spinning machines were invented that was a huge leap forward in textile production and the availability of cloth not only for clothes but for things like sails and sacks and tents, uh, all kinds of things. Um, And it was great for weavers. And they enjoyed what one uh, historian calls a golden heyday. And they didn't like that. But there was actually, in that earlier period, there was also violence. And there was also protest. uh, Because people didn't like uh, the fact that these spinning machines were putting people out of work. Um, Not just spinners, but there were also things in in the the preparing of the like the wool fleece for mm-hmm. uh, for spinning and such. So this is an eternal story, and it is – you can have great amounts of sympathy for people who are displaced, had – you know, had what was once a very valuable skill, and suddenly its value goes to little or nothing. You can have great sympathy for them, but in the bigger picture, uh, this is how living standards get raised. And the, the, you know, we certainly would not like to go back to a world without spinning machines or power looms or uh, any of these other other stories. So, um, you know, where we were using only indigo from indigo plantations, uh, that sort of thing. So you see this pattern in the history of technology and and the history of textiles. And it's also uh, the history of women because one of the things that happens, I mean, I, mean, I hate to, you can't separate the history of women and the history of men. I, I, that's a problem. But one of the things that happens when you get spinning machines is that suddenly women don't have to spend all their days spinning (laughs) and they can do other things, uh, including working in spinning mills. But uh, that is a liberating technology as well as a a disruptive one. Yeah. I mean, it's actually incredible in the book. You know, at some point it it sort of feels that that basically – you know, all women in the world were basically spending all their time spinning just because in order to have enough uh, supply to actually make clothing, you, you needed that. You sort yeah. of needed this broad yeah. base of, of labor. And it, it just seems like, you know, almost everybody and, you know, I I would say employed very loosely because it often wasn't like it certainly wasn't employment, um, you know, but but 
you know, and, and so you think about, you know, you had everybody effectively working in this industry, uh, and yet you still didn't have nearly enough output. Right, right. I mean, to, the numbers yeah. are staggering when you think about the size of the population. I mean, you know, you've got in on the cusp of the Industrial Revolution, and for those who have no idea what the time frame is, you know, if you think about uh, – the Industrial Revolution is like 1780-ish. I mean, it's not a single year, but if you think about that. Um, At that time, something like one and a half million women in a working population of four million people in Britain were spinning. Uh, You know, that is just a staggering number of people. And it took like 20 people to supply one weaver. Um, so it's it, it's really remarkable uh, how how much labor it took to make, and the result is that cloth is very very precious and very valuable. And uh, one thing that the industrial revolution produces, for example, is you get the first patchwork quilts. Now quilts are not new. Quilts, the idea of taking two pieces of fabric and putting some kind of stuffing in between them and sewing them so that it's warm, mm-hmm. that's not a new idea. But taking little pieces and cut in precise geometric patterns to make shapes, and that requires that you be able to waste cloth. Right. And so that only becomes something that people really do in large numbers in the 19th century, once cloth becomes a little more abundant. And also women's time. A lot of the time that used to be spent spinning is spent doing things like making quilts. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, one thing that I think is important to note, I mean, a lot of the book obviously goes through all of these periods of history and gives all these details and examples and, and stories and anecdotes. But, you know, there are also parts of the book where you're looking at some of the, the, the innovations that are happening today and, and some of the incredible things that are happening sort of in and around the world of fabric and textiles yeah. today. Um, do you want to give a couple examples there that you found interesting? Yeah. So when people ask me what's next... My first example is has to do with the integration of um, algorithmic-based simulations on computers and three-dimensional knitting. Mm-hmm. So knitting has sort of supplanted weaving as the dominant way of producing fabric for clothes. And the way most – like if you have a T-shirt, the way the fabric in that T-shirt was probably produced is – there's a knitting machine that makes a giant cylinder and then they slice one, they slice the sides of the cylinder off and they cut and sew the body and the sleeves and all of that. But for several decades, it has also been possible to have a computer-driven 3D knitting machine that knits the whole thing, the sleeves and everything uh, in one piece so that nobody has to sew it together. But it's a little bit slower uh, that's a lot slower, uh, has been. And it's therefore tends, has tended to be used for higher end things. But what is happening today is there's, the cost is driven down the, you know, as all things having to do with computers, things get better and cheaper (laughs) over time. And, uh, you're starting to have more and more of, of this 3d knitting use. So for example, now you have shoe manufacturers who will program on the computer, you know, they can regulate the, so that the, this one piece is knit in one piece, but the, the, 
the thickness and the stitch that where the heel is is different from where the arch is is different from where the shoestrings go and then you end up with this one piece which can just be folded and, and glued and you put the the sole on it so it's all one piece and this is very efficient because it allows inventories to be kept in thread uh, which is flexible rather than in finished products which might not sell uh, and then the, so that's happening already uh, the next stage is going to be taking um, uh, simulations that were developed that have tra traveled from the animation business where they were making fake cloth into uh, textile design uh, where people are scanning uh, individual specific brands, specific uh, yarn uh, to get its characteristics. And then you can simulate on your computer, if you're, a, you know, you're an apparel designer, you can simulate from the yarn up how exactly this sweater or this shoe or this hoodie will work when it's manufactured. And then you can eliminate a lot of steps uh, because you do it, you do it virtually before you do it, uh, uh, uh literally or actually <laughs> physically right. um and so a lot of this is you know people trying to cut out waste uh, there's some environmental implications but mostly it's just about money it's about not having inventories of stuff that doesn't sell it's about not having samples that don't work right uh so that's one thing that's going on and then there's a bunch of other things there's always advances in materials but a lot of them don't get beyond the lab. So one of the tricks for somebody like me is to try to figure out, you know, what might actually happen. Uh, the one that I'm most excited about is bioengineered uh, protein polymers, uh, sometimes described as silk, uh, although <laughs> it could be uh, because the earliest ones are based on spider silk. Um, mm. But down there, and, and this is not commercial yet, um, but there has been a lot of venture money poured into uh, this type of thing. And down the road, that could give us lots and lots of new fibers uh, that with different characteristics sort of uh, programmed in, if you will, uh, by the characteristics of, of the, uh, the, the protein polymers. Uh, basically, what you're doing is you're tricking yeast into excreting uh, these silk or whatever, these protein polymers, instead of uh, excreting alcohol, um, if you think of it like brewing. So that is, you know, and that has, again, uh, it has functional potential implications. It has environmental implications because uh, these these things would break down in landfills. They wouldn't last forever. Um, you wouldn't need uh, hydrocarbons to make them. But there's a lot going on. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, for anyone listening, I think by now they should realize like the, the book has all sorts of really – fun and wonderful and interesting stories uh, and, and details and, and research. When you were doing all of this research for the book, was there anything that, that really surprised you or stood out as, as you know, something you weren't expecting as you were exploring all of this? Yeah, what most, the thing that surprised me the most was that in the 16th and 17th century in northern Italy, people were operating giant silk factories with hundreds of employees working 24-7. Uh, and the core of these factories were these 
two-story or more hydraulically powered uh, machines for what's called throwing, but it's basically twisting uh, silk threads. I mean, and and when I saw them, it's even more amazing. <laughs> I mean, there uh, <laughs> several of them. Uh, they've either been restored or recovered, uh, or re- uh, restored or reconstructed. Um, and they are remarkable because this was happening. They are these giant machines built entirely of wood, uh, powered by the kinds of fast-flowing streams that you have at the foot of the Alps. And there were hundreds and hundreds of people working in these factories. And this is before the Industrial Revolution. And who knew? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, uh, as I think is clear, like the, the book is really amazing. Uh, I, I enjoyed reading it. Like just, you know, every page there's something interesting or something I had never thought of or, or that made me think about things in a different way. Um, it's it's a really, really excellent book. Uh, and, and it's, you know, I've kept thinking about it since I, since I finished reading it. Um, because it's, it just has so many different lessons and, and ideas around technology and innovation, um, often in ways I wasn't expecting. Uh, and so I, I, I it's, it's, it's a wonderful book. So for people listening it, to, uh, if, if you haven't realized by now that I, that I believe this book is really worth reading, uh, <laughs> I'll just put an exclamation point on that. Um, so Virginia, thank you so much for thank for, you. For, you know, for for writing the book, doing all this research, putting together a wonderful wonderful set of stories, and and really really interesting and and relevant, and for taking the time to to talk to us, and uh, I, I think everyone will really enjoy this. My pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening as well. We'll be back next week. Someone will get.